During this Advent season, we're uh, looking at encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. So I invite you to turn to, this morning to Luke chapter 18 as we look at Jesus' encounter with a certain rich young ruler. Luke 18, beginning at verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all, all that we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. In his book, Modern Madness, uh, Washington psychoanalyst Douglas LeBeer paints a, a, a pitiful picture of a thoroughly modern man. He writes this, Jim said he had been referred by a colleague who was a former patient of mine and that he wanted to begin therapy because he had a variety of things crippling him. He looked to be somewhere toward the far end of his 30s, trim, sandy-haired, and well-dressed, though his Ralph Lauren shirt appeared to be the loser in a battle with the afternoon's tropical humidity. We shook hands, and he walked across my office, looking a tinge weary, or maybe wary. He didn't look around the room, as new patients often do, but sat down in the chair opposite me after a short pause in front of the sofa. Then he turned his head and gazed silently out of the large window which looks out upon a fenced-in rock garden. He seemed to be studying the rhythmic swaying of the fir trees, which all of a sudden had started taking a beating from one of those quick and violent thunderstorms so typical of Washington summers. I was curious about why he was interested in therapy. Finally, he started talking, slowly and in a monotone. He said, I want to make it clear from the start that I don't think there's much wrong with me. I had a pretty good childhood. I was always an achiever. I went to the best schools. I think I'm pretty creative. And I know how to get ahead in my career. I've already proven that. I've always wanted to be the best, have the best. It's just, sometimes I feel I don't enjoy any of it. Nothing. I feel listless, like a dead battery. I need something to get me more charged up, but nothing seems to work anymore. Yet I know I've got so much going for me. Recognition, travel, women. So I was hoping you could find out what's stopping me from enjoying life more and fix me up. I need to get more turned on to life. 
Jim turned away from the window and stared directly at me for a moment, looking for something. He flashed a nervous grin, revealing a slightly crooked front tooth. Then he turned back to the window as tears began sliding down his face. Jim seemed to have it all, didn't he? Seemed to have it all, and all that the world could give. But he was like one of those Washington tourists, uh, wandering around without a map. He was lost. And I think this man, Jim, is a lot like the man in our gospel story, isn't he? That man felt a need, too, not just for enjoyment of life, a need for what he calls eternal life. Eternal life. It's one of the key themes of the Bible. It's one of the great promises of God. But I don't think the notion of of eternal life really communicates very well in our culture. I mean, it reminds me of the contest whose winner received a weekend in Detroit. Second place, a week in Detroit. Uh, I mean, to those who, who don't care much for life now, living for all eternity offers little attraction. There's research going on, perhaps you've heard about it, on how to arrest the aging process so that the human body will continually renew itself indefinitely. I'm not sure how many people would actually want the treatment. Who really wants to live on in this world forever? Eternal life, it's a deceptive term to most of us simply because we we focus on the eternal part of it when the real emphasis in the Bible is on the life. In fact, when you look at Matthew's account of this this interaction, uh, Jesus' response to this man is simply, he speaks of entering into life. You see, eternal life is life of a a special kind. It's it's life with an eternal dimension simply because it's life lived in relationship with God, now and forever. For you see, relationship with God is something that death can never destroy. Eternal life. That's what this man was longing for. And it's something that we all long for deep inside. Something more than the vanity, the futility, the one-dimensional life that's offered to us in our secular society. For the Bible says, you see, God has placed eternity in our hearts. And this uh, rich ruler in the story, who's described as Ma- by Matthew as, as still a young man, a, a man with a lifetime of possibilities ahead of him, this rich young ruler knew that eternal life was the deepest need of his own soul, to have some eternal reference to give meaning to the day-to-day existence of life. It's what Augustine described as that that God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each one of us, an inner longing for this divine side of life. And it's this longing that lies behind the question of this man who comes to Jesus and who asks in verse 18, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's why this man's encounter with Jesus is so important to us this morning. He wanted something that we all want. And he believed that Jesus could tell him where to find it. He knew that he lacked something. But before we consider what it was that he lacked, I want us to look first at what he didn't lack. And four things come to mind from the story. First, he he certainly didn't lack financial success. Luke tells us in verse 23 that he was a man of great wealth. And this wasn't a a man looking for some uh, sweet pie in the sky by and by simply because all he could manage in this world was bread and water. 
No, this guy had made it. Most of us would say he had it made. He was a part of the 1%. A man of means, a ruler of some sort, possessing wealth and the freedom and the power that goes with it. He could go where he wanted to go, do what he wanted to do, buy what he wanted to buy. But though he was outwardly rich, inwardly he sensed his own poverty. There's got to be something more to life, he said. Now, I think most of us know that wealth won't give us happiness, but unfortunately, most of us still want to discover that for ourselves by experience rather than taking somebody else's word for it. Uh, Who doesn't want to win the giant jackpot in the lottery? I mean, this man didn't lack financial success and the trappings of power that went with it, but that was not enough. He wanted eternal life. And second, this man didn't lack moral respectability. Jesus told the man to obey the commandments and even list some of them for him. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, the man said. By his own assessment, he'd kept the commandments and there's no reason to question his sincerity. He was no doubt a a good man from a good home, an honest and righteous man, impeccable by any human standards. I'm sure he would have been a nice man to have as a neighbor or a colleague at work, a man highly respected for his integrity, for his compassion, his generosity, the kind of guy whose life makes you feel guilty when you compare it to your own. No, he didn't like moral respectability, but there was something missing from his life. And you can be sure that some of the most moral people around you still have something very important missing in their life too. But before we consider this missing element, let's look at another thing this man wasn't lacking, and that's religious zeal. It was he, you see, who initiated this discussion with Jesus. It was he who was seeking and searching. In fact, Mark tells us in his gospel that this man ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees before him. He didn't wait to be called. He sought Jesus out. He wanted to know the wisdom of this great teacher. He seemed sincere in his efforts to know the truth. He was what many would call a spiritual man. And notice this man wanted eternal life. He begins by asking the right question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was concerned about his own soul. And more than that, Luke tells us that this man was a ruler. Uh, He was a Jewish man, so probably this referred to his position either as a member of the Jewish ruling body known as the Sanhedrin or simply a leader in his own local Jewish synagogue. Either way, he was a religious leader. Every Sabbath he was there, faithful in his worship, attending to the Torah, doing his duties. Certainly he had plenty of religion. And perhaps you've had religious feelings like this man. You know what it is to sense a spiritual need. Perhaps you've had your conscience convicted. You've even shed tears of contrition. You've been active in the church, faithful in your religious duties. Just remember, this man displayed great religious zeal, but that was not enough. Financial success, moral respectability, religious zeal, he lacked none of these. And he says, one final thing this man didn't lack. And that's Jesus' love. Luke doesn't mention it explicitly here, though it's there if you read between the lines, but Mark spells it out. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now that's a touching comment, isn't it? Jesus' heart seems to go out to this earnest young man. He saw his sincerity, he saw his potential, he saw his need. 
Jesus wanted him to be fulfilled, to enter into this eternal life of God. Yet even with the love of Jesus and his desire to obtain eternal life, this man still lacked one thing. Now, outwardly, he seemed to have it all. He had societal status. He was recognized as a man of authority, religious authority, no less. He had wealth and all the security and comforts that money can buy. And more than that, he was young and he was probably good-looking. As someone has said, it's hard to be young and rich and not be good-looking. But that was not enough. And I can't help but draw the lesson back to ourselves. I, I, I don't imagine that many of us are millionaires, but by any reasonable standard, there's a lot of money represented here. Many have a certain social status, respect of peers, positions of some authority. There's a lot of morality here, too, where we're nice people, by and large, respectable citizens, good neighbors. And there's some evidence of religious zeal, your spiritual people, I mean, your presence here testifies to that. You didn't have to come. You could be doing something else, but you came here to hear a message from the Bible. It's evidence of some spiritual hunger in your souls. And I can say, too, there's a great deal of Jesus' love represented here. I'm sure he looks on us with with some of that same compassion and affection which he had for this man. But it is a most solemn thought that despite all these advantages, despite the appearance of having it all, any one of us can still lack that one thing. What was the one thing this man lacked? You still lack one thing, Jesus said. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. What did Jesus mean by that? Was he saying that if only this young man would add philanthropy to his list of moral achievements, then he would have enough credit to earn his way through the pearly gates of heaven? I'm afraid that's uh, what some people understand by Jesus' words here. Eternal life becomes yet another commodity that can be purchased by their works of charity or their giving to worthy causes. But that's not it at all. Uh, Jesus is saying something entirely different than that. The key verb you see in this verse, verse 22, is not sell, it's not even give, the key verb is follow. You see, Jesus doesn't demand of every person that, he, that comes to him seeking eternal life that they should abandon all their property, but he does say to every one of us, follow me. You see, eternal life is nothing more than the life of Jesus. Jesus was, and he is, eternal life in the flesh. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the life of God entering into the life of this world. Jesus is eternal life embodied in a human being. Eternal life is no commodity to be bought and sold. No, eternal life comes through a relationship with Jesus, who is the living one. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so you see, people find eternal life not by coming to Jesus as a customer to buy, but by coming to Jesus as a disciple to follow. For you see, in following Jesus, we're we're joined to Him. We share in who He is for us. 
And Jesus gives eternal life to us by giving us himself. And that's just what this man lacked. A relationship with Jesus Christ. He had everything else. But everything else was not enough. In fact, everything else seemed to stand in the way of his receiving this one thing that he lacked. And move with compassion and love. Jesus challenged him to, to, to come into this relationship. He says, put away everything else. Everything else that now holds your attention, holds your affection, and come, follow me. Verse 23. When this young, rich ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Tragic, isn't it? It's one of the most heartbreaking statements in all the Bible. Here was a young man full of hope and, and anticipation, running to Jesus in search of the answer to the deepest question of his heart. He wanted eternal life. Here was, here was the one man who could give it to him. Yet when this man offered him his hand and offered his life, he refused to take it. Why? What, what hindered him? Well, we see hints in this story. That he was hindered especially by a a clouded understanding of God. Uh, This is signaled to us first by Jesus' curt reply to the man's seemingly praiseworthy question in verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, Jesus is not saying that he's not good. No, he's challenging this man's understanding of what is good. For you see, this man, goodness seemed to be some common human quality, whereas for Jesus, goodness was an expression of the very character of God himself. Had this man understood who God is? Had he grasped the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the total and complete goodness of God, the one and only who truly is good? Or did this man really believe that he could perform some extraordinary good deed to merit entrance into the relationship with this this holy God? And that seems to be the assumption of his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus puts him to the test, obey the commandments. And he goes on, he lists some of the basics, laws on murder, adultery, theft, honesty, parental honor. All these I have kept since I was a boy, the man blurts out. And and the superficiality of his understanding comes clear. Especially when you consider what Jesus had already taught about what all these commandments really entail. What they really mean. You've heard it said to people long ago, do not murder Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be perfect, Jesus says. Be whole in mind and heart and soul, just as your heavenly Father is perfectly whole. See, this man lacked a knowledge of God's holiness, his true goodness, for his outward moral respectability based on human standards was nothing compared to the quality that God demands of the creatures created in his own image. 
A standard which is nothing less than to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So this man thinks very highly of his own moral standing. So Jesus puts him to the test. He says, if you really want to have what I have to give you, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus knew that a man cannot serve two masters. He will love one or hate the other. You cannot serve God and money for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is your heart, he's saying to this man? Here was the choice. And suddenly this man's goodness was shown for what it really was, a human facade hiding a heart that was in fact far from the kingdom of God. And how often our problems in coming to God and enjoying the life that he has to offer us stem from a failure to understand his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness. Do we really think that we can do some good thing that will impress God, something that will merit his failure, something that will win eternal life for us? We understood the great gulf that exists between our feeble human efforts and the infinite goodness of a holy God. This man turned down the offer of eternal life, partially at least because he lacked a knowledge of the absolute goodness of God, and consequently he thought far too much of his own righteousness. Well, you may ask, where does that leave us? Who can stand before a holy God? And that's a good question. It's a question that finds its answer in the simple words of Jesus when he says, come, follow me. Come, follow me. For you see, this this man was hindered because he didn't understand the grace of God. Did he want to find eternal life? Well, Well, Jesus says to him, follow me and it will be yours. Come, follow me. It's mine to give. This new life is not something you can earn. It's not something you can deserve. God God is good. He is too good, too righteous, too holy for you to earn righteousness, to come into his presence. It's not a matter of what you do at all. Eternal life is mine to give as a gift. If you would but put your trust in me, let me be your master, you'll find it. Eternal life is not something you earn by taking a vow of poverty. But but Jesus knew that this man had a a divided heart. And in this case, a wholehearted faith in Jesus was impossible until he could rid himself of this idol, this idol of money. And oh, how tight a grip money can take in our lives. It's almost like uh, Frodo's golden ring. You know that story? Mysteriously working to take control of your heart. And Jesus knows all about the seductive power of money, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He says, indeed, it is easier for a camel, which was the largest animal known to the people in Palestine, to go through the eye of a needle, which was the smallest opening known to them. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How wealth can capture a person's heart. It is dangerous, Jesus says. Money so easily becomes an idol. It's what we look to for our security, what we look to for our satisfactions, what we look to for our significance. And all of these are the things that we're meant to find in their ultimate sense in God alone. 
So our wealth, it becomes like a mistress that, that we become attracted to, entranced by, we, we depend on, we can't conceive of doing without it. And so it functions as our Savior, it measures our worth. Does wealth function this way in your life? How attached to it are you? How hard is it for you to give it away? How fearful are you of losing it? How envious are you of those who have more of it than you do? What power does it have in your life? Do you control your money or does it control you? Have, have you got it? Has it got you in, in its grip? That's what it had done for this man. And that's why Jesus deals with him the way he does. Yes, eternal life is ours as a gift only through faith, a faith that trusts Jesus enough to put him first in our lives. But Jesus' demand to this young ruler, he shows us that faith can be costly. It's like a marriage, you know. It can be very expensive to get married these days. The, the Connors are here. They're, they're dealing with that right now. You, I mean, you've got to... You've got you print wedding invitations. You've got to rent a reception room. You've got to cater the food. You've got to have the wedding dress and the rings. And, and then there's even the, the pastor's fee to consider. And <laughs> it can be very costly to get married. But none of these things are what make marriage really expensive. What makes marriage expensive are the promises. I think of a young couple barely in their 20s standing in front of the church making their wedding vows. Do they really know what they're doing? Do they know what they're saying? Forsaking all others, they say, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health till death us do part. It's an act of faith. And that kind of faith is very expensive. For what do they say when they exchange those rings? With this ring I thee wed and with all my worldly goods I thee endow. Now that's expensive. It costs everything you've got. Marriage is expensive. But I, for one, will tell you, it's worth every penny. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to know. See, after this rich man walks away, Peter, Peter is a little bit bewildered by it all. Peter says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. With the implication, what's in it for us? I tell you the truth, Jesus said to him. The one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive as many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, in this new family, this new family of believers where we have brothers and sisters to, a, a galore in this new family in which the age to come enters into this present age, we experience a taste of eternal life, something that will be ours in full when Christ comes again in glory. Yes, it is costly, but it is worth it all. And I want you to see this invitation, this call of Jesus, it is two-sided. When we give up all that we have to enter into this life, to enter into a relationship with Jesus who is life, we have to recognize that Jesus has already given up all that He has for us. 
For you see, the gospel, the gospel is the story, the Son of God who shared in the very glory of His Father, making Himself nothing for those He came to save. Jesus, in His life and death for us, He entered into a poverty beyond anything we can imagine so that we might enjoy riches beyond our wildest dreams. And Paul says it so clearly, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. You see, it's like a marriage. We offer Him all that we are, but He has first offered us all that He is. And it's His promise that comes first. How can we not accept such a gift? The story of this rich, young ruler. It's one of the most dramatic encounters in the Bible, isn't it? This man comes to Jesus with a deep sense of need, with religious zeal, seeking eternal life. But after such a promising beginning, the end is far from happy. This rich, young ruler, he went away sad. And although Jesus loved him, he didn't run after him. Jesus didn't say, wait, 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 let's make a deal. I'll give you another offer. 50-50. No, it was all or nothing. Jesus offered eternal life. All it cost is all that you have. But the offer was refused. The proposal was rejected. It's a tragic story. What hindered him? This, this rich young man, one could say that his faulty knowledge of God held him back. He, he knew little of the goodness of God, nothing of the grace of God that's revealed to us so clearly in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, this man lacked the will to pay the price. When confronted by the cost of following Jesus, he found it too high. He was shown that that precious pearl of life, which is very expensive, but which anyone can afford. But in the end, he turned his back on eternal life. I like the story. uh, It's told of a young couple who just got married, and the the groom, just after the wedding, went to the uh, pastor. He asked, Pastor, how much do I owe you? The pastor replied, well, well, just give me what you think she's worth. <laughs> so this starry-eyed young man started uh, pulling out $20 bills and putting them in the pastor's hand, 20 40 60 80 About this time, he started getting a little more reluctant. He started to think about it. He had one more bill in his hand. He, he looked at his wife. He, he looked at the pastor one more look at his beloved wife, and, and he laid that last $20 bill in the pastor's hand. And the story goes that the pastor then took, took a look at the girl himself and gave him $10 back in change. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have told that story. How much is it worth to have Jesus Christ in your life? How much does eternal life mean to you? This is, a, this is something that, if you're not a Christian here, if you've not yet turned to Christ in faith for that first time, you need to wrestle with. But if you're a believer here, this is something that continually confronts us. How, how much do we draw, want to draw near to Jesus Christ? How much is it worth to us? How much do we want to experience the life that is found in Him? 
This man came so close. He seemed to have so much. He was standing before Jesus himself at the very gates of heaven. But he didn't go in. He turned away. Could there be something missing in your life? Do you feel a need to have your batteries charged? Have you lost a zest for living? And maybe because you have no connection to the very author of life itself. Don't, don't go to a therapist. No, I, I, I urge you first, come to Jesus. This Jesus who looks at you through the eyes of love. This Jesus who has given up all that he had for us. And now says, come. He says, come. Come to me. So I urge you, when you hear this call in your life to follow him, don't refuse the offer. Whatever the cost, it's worth it. It's worth it. For you see, this, this gospel, this salvation that he gives, it's not, like a, it's not like a Christmas gift. It's more like a marriage. In other words, it's not something that you sort of get out here. It's something that Jesus gives when he gives you himself in this ongoing, living relationship with the one who is life itself, eternal life. Lord, draw us near, we pray. Let's pray. Lord, may we hear these words, how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Who then can be saved? Peter asked. Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. It is possible with God because God himself can open our eyes to see the wondrous beauty of the goodness and grace of Jesus himself so that we might desire him more than anything else, more than anything this world can offer. Lord, may we come to Him to find our security. May we come to Him to find our significance. May we come to Him to find our deepest satisfaction in life where we can obtain all that this world has to offer and lack this one thing, this life that Jesus alone can give us. Lord, may we desire Him above all else. May we come to Him in faith. May we draw near to Him whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, Lord, may we draw near to Him and experience this life which You give us. And this we pray through His glorious name. Amen and amen.